0: I'm James Rosen, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax and author of the new book, *Golia: Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. And you're not just listening to the Dr. Sky experience, you're having a Dr. Sky experience on 77 WABC New York.
1: And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much—the Doctor Sky Experience. As we're here today with a very special guest, talking about an exceptional book. We're going to introduce our very special guest just in one moment. It's James Rosen, the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. He's a veteran Washington correspondent and best-selling historian. He reported for Fox News for nearly two decades, and his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. The Atlantic, and National Review, among other outlets. Rosen's previous books include The Strongman, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, and Cheney, One-on-One, a candid conversation with America's most controversial statesman. But today, a recently released Regnery book, as we get all the great authors from Regnery talking about some exceptional things about America. But today, many remember Justice Antonin Scalia for his commitment to the Constitution, his razor-sharp wit, or his unlikely friendship, that is, with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But little has been written about his pre-Supreme Court years. Award-winning reporter James Rosen reveals never before reported information in this definitive, masterful biography, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 1986 This is the most comprehensive and detailed account of Scalia's monumental accomplishments in the 50 years preceding his appointment to the Supreme Court. And we welcome James Rosen here on the Dr. Sky Experience on Talk Radio 77 WABC, the crown jewel of radio, broadcasting out of New York, the nation, the world, and the cosmos. Mr. Rosen, thank you for spending the time with us today. Appreciate your time. Well, I, this, I'm
0: grateful to be uh, undergoing my first Dr. Sky Experience. And I also grew up uh, on Staten Island, New York, as a regular listener to 77 WABC, uh, even
1: if I play music. Absolutely, sir, and they still do. A powerhouse in radio from Cousin Brucey to Dan (laughs) Uh, to the new owner, John Katsimatidis. And as you know, sir, another fellow broadcaster, Greg Kelly, has a major position show here during daytime drive time. So we appreciate your time. But going to your book, sir, this is fascinating. It's not just a regular book on history. You have personal experiences here. So you spent five years searching Scalia, The Rise to Greatness. So in a brief statement, what materials did you uncover that have never been published before. And ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be exciting if you want to study the Supreme Court. Mr. Rosen, tell us more.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Skye. Um, this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986, to 1986, tells the story of the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court. And so I hope, if not before then, Dr. Skye, about two plus years from now, I'll be back with you to discuss the second and final volume of the biography, which will cover Justice Scalia's uh, tenure on the Supreme Court, but he had a fascinating and very consequential life uh, even before he took his seat on the Supreme Court. That's what this book treats. Um, This is the first comprehensive biography of Antonin Scalia. There were two previous books done about him. Um, They were both published while he was alive. He cooperated with one of them extensively, the other not at all. And they both turned out in the same place, which is to say, fairly open in their hostility to Justice Scalia and his conduct and his jurisprudence and his legacy. Um, So this is the first, I like to say this is the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia because it's the first admiring one. Uh, In terms of new material, this book is the first to be published after his death. It makes use of a vast array of documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to the previous hostile authors. I'll give you a few quick examples. In 1992, his seventh term on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia asked a female attorney that he had known for about 15 years to uh, visit him in chambers and conduct uh, an oral history with him of his looking back on his entire life. This secret oral history that Justice Scalia conducted in 1992 uh, uh, was never unsealed until 2018. And so this is the first book to make use of that very important document. And it helps us correct a number of Inaccurate uh, statements and uh, and assertions from those earlier books about him. Um, this is the first book to make use of Justice Scalia's FBI files, which were declassified after his death in 2016. Uh, Justice Scalia was subjected, as he rose through the executive and judiciary branches, to four FBI background checks in 14 years between 1972 Amazing. and 86. And you can see, as you read these files, how the process grows more and more computerized over time as they begin to search data banks and that sort of thing. Uh, The vast machinery of the world's preeminent law enforcement organization was cranked up uh, with agents fanned out across the country, interviewing everyone that had ever known Scalia, dating back to when he was 13 years old in 1949, all in an effort to, uh, to locate any kind of derogatory information that might exist anywhere in the world about Antonin Scalia. And none was ever uh, discovered for the simple reason that none existed. He lived an exemplary Catholic life, he and his wife, Maureen. Um, There are hundreds and hundreds of pages here where you see the agents hearing the same things over and over again. This is the most honest man I've ever met. This is the most intellectually brilliant man I've ever met. This man is not just qualified for a federal judgeship. This man is the most qualified person you could imagine for a federal judgeship. Um, and just a few more uh, categories sure. here of, of new documents, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. because I'm proud of all the, the, the new documentation that is, that is brought to bear in this book, which, by the way, is written for non-lawyers. Everyone can understand this book, Scalia yes. Rise to Greatness. Uh, Scalia's first job in government uh, when he was uh, in his early 30s was to serve as general counsel to a brand new agency, which was created by the Nixon administration called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. Um, Scalia understood that telecom was the future, and he was recruited by a visionary and a genius, a man who deserves his own biography, named Tom Whitehead, who ran this new agency that he advocated that be created. It was called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. And Whitehead and Scalia, against the resistance of the bureaucracy, uh, were able to enact a new policy called Open Skies. And it basically allowed instead of the one entity at the time in the early 70s that was allowed to launch domestic space satellites, which was a quasi-public-private corporation called ComSat, uh, Mm -hmm. Scalia and Whitehead wanted that opportunity to launch domestic space satellites to be available to any corporation in America that had the requisite technical prowess and capital reserves. They wanted to apply free market principles to this very important business of launching domestic space satellites, and they succeeded. And that turbocharged the... Telecom revolution, the results of which are all around us today. And I'm the first researcher to um, to go extensively through Antonin Scalia's papers when he was the general counsel to this new White House mm-hmm. office of telecommunications policy. And it 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 just boggles the mind that Scalia wrote a paper in 1971 about what he called the coming computer society, in which Scalia predicted that users of computers at remote terminals would not only have access to hundreds of channels of television but would do their banking from these terminals and would be able to retrieve from these terminals information located in just about any library in the world. In short, Antonin Scalia predicted the Internet and also predicted the attendant privacy concerns and the huge financial rewards that this revolution would reap.
1: All these are great revelations.
0: In his career, Mm -hmm. he then went to work for the Ford administration. He was the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel. It's a very important position. Uh, This is at the Department of Justice, This is the person who uh, receives requests from anyone in the executive branch, from the president on down, for binding legal opinions on what's lawful and not lawful for an administration to do. And so uh, Scalia, in this position, uh, this is the post-Watergate era, uh, not only fought for the preservation of the powers of the presidency at a time when reckless and greedy ideas were flying on Capitol Hill and in the media about emasculating the president of the United States, curtailing his powers to act in crises, Uh, But he also participated, Scalia did, in the reformation of the intelligence community after the revelations of all the abuses of the preceding 25 years. It got to the point where the White House, Mm -hmm. the Ford White House, was running past Antonin Scalia, not yet 40, uh, all covert operations for his approval. And uh, a previously unpublished account in this book details how, on the afternoon of April 30, 1975, uh, the Ford White House telephoned Scalia and says, hey, we need an opinion from you in a few hours here. Uh, We want to know if it's lawful for us to land our U.S. military helicopters on the roof of the Saigon embassy, the U.S. embassy in Saigon, to evacuate our personnel. And Scalia provided a legal opinion saying that it was lawful. But again, he says in this book, uh, published here for the first time, uh, what if I didn't give my approval? Would they call off the evacuation of our personnel from the embassy as Saigon was falling on advice of legal counsel? He said, what is the world coming to? And then lastly, uh, one other category of documents I'd like to bring to the attention of our listeners. Please.
1: Yes, absolutely. Is what I call
0: the RBG Nino Papers. You mentioned this in your introduction, Dr. Skye. We're all familiar with the celebrated friendship between Justice Scalia and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, They were the best of friends. They rang in New Year's with their spouses every year. Uh, The two of them went to the opera together. They rode elephants in India together. Uh, They were the best of friends, even as they remained throughout uh, ideological or jurisprudential opponents. Sure. And their relationship is enshrined in stage plays and in opera uh, and immortalized uh, as an example, instructive for all of us in these polarized times, of uh, comedy amongst intellectual combatants. Uh, I even saw a life coach recently urging us all to go out and find the Ginsburg to our inner Scalia. Uh, what, <laughs> yeah. what people don't know about this extraordinary friendship is that it didn't begin on the Supreme Court. It began when the two of them served as judges together on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. That's one rung below the Supreme Court, and it's commonly described as the second most powerful court in America. It shapes the work of the Supreme Court to quite an extent. That is interesting. Um, And when Scalia served on that court as a federal appeals judge from 1982 to 86, at which point he was elevated to the Supreme Court, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg follows him there seven years later, uh, there was a real murderer's row of judicial talent serving. You had on the on that one panel, as judges together, Robert Bork, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, Kenneth Starr, Lawrence Silberman, and others. And Very powerful. Uh, Justice Ginsburg's papers from her tenure on the Supreme Court are closed. Uh, almost all of Justice Scalia's papers are closed. They're up mm-hmm. at the uh, Harvard Law School Library. I did work with the archivists there to get out some documents that I could uh, and some photographs. Uh, but when I asked them, for example, to nail down the date of my second lunch with Justice Scalia, which took place in the fall term of 2001, uh, the archivist at Harvard politely replied to me that they could not help me because that segment of his papers will be closed until the year 2032. However, uh, RBG's papers from her tenure on the Court of Appeals when she served alongside Scalia from 82 to 86, those are open. 220 mm-hmm. boxes at the Library of Congress. I I'm the first researcher to go through them at great lengths. And oh, uh, we published these, I call them the RBG Nino Papers. They are in Scalia Rise to Greatness. And what they capture is not only two legal geniuses mm-hmm. squaring off over the First Amendment and the other issues that arose before them as jurists, but mm-hmm. their sparkling wit, their affection for each other, and really the birth and the blossoming, in real time, in their own words, of this celebrated friendship. So that's just a, a smattering of some of the new materials that are in this book. And I appreciate you allowing me to
1: no, detail that. No, it's James. You. And I want to remind everybody you're listening to the Doctor Sky Experience here exclusively on Talk Radio 77, WABC, the Crown Jewel, as we like to call it, James, of radio, here basically broadcasting from New York, the nation, the world, and I'm sure out to the cosmos. And many of our listeners, I'm sure there's regular content here from the world of astrophysics, astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. But as we have today, very special James Rosen, the chief correspondent from talking about a recently released book that is in the history and story of many of the things that go on in the Supreme Court, but more specifically, Scalia, the title, the Skilled sc- Scalia, the Rise to Greatness, this book is on the must must have on your, your bookshelf. It's so fascinating here. I'd like to talk a little bit about the man and from my reading of your book, and I find it fascinating the five hundred pages that, as I like to call it, episode one, although another expanding series that you're going to continue on. Moral character is what I find so fascinating about this particular individual. And you know this because it's in your book. What is it? The habit of courage is not acquired by study, but by practice. And I find this most fascinating to be listening to this particular interview. Describe him in some detail because it's quite fascinating that this man, of course, going to the schools like Xavier, real, real places for what? Learning about discipline, learning about true patriotism. Please comment on that, because I think it's so important that people know a little bit more about the character of this man. It's incredible.
0: Sure, and it's essential to his rise to the pinnacle of his profession. And it's essential to how and why Antonin Scalia had such an extraordinary impact, not only in American law, but all of American society. And indeed, he's not just one of the most important justices of recent memory. Antonin Scalia is one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. If you read Scalia, Rise to Greatness, you'll understand why. He was born in Trenton, New Jersey, but uh, when he was five, he moved to Queens. And he uh, considered himself he loved, he didn't really like Trenton, but he loved Queens. And so he considered himself sort of a, a native New Yorker, if you will. Sure. And uh, his, his, his Scalia is really, when he became Supreme Court Justice in 1986, it was widely and, and, and accurately celebrated that he really was the embodiment of the American dream. Scalia's father came to this country from Italy in 1920 uh, with $400 in his pocket and not speaking a word of English. And, and he made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Scalia's mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants, and she became a school teacher. They right. were devout Catholics. And um, from those three influences, the influence of his mother, who who venerated form and composition and the classics in her own way, um, and who made sure that young Nino Scalia stayed on the right side of the tracks and hosted the the Cub Scout meetings in her, in their home to make sure. Um, and from his father, who was a stern man, but who believed uh, intensely in moral uh, moral character. Uh, his father used to say to him, uh, "Brains are like muscles; they can be rented by the hour. The only thing that's never for sale." Is character. <laughs> That's good. That's uh, and great. His father's published writings as a professor warned of the perils of the original meaning of a sacred text being distorted by a dishonest translator or interpreter. And from the the sacred foundational texts of the Catholic Church and the liturgy of the Catholic Church, from all three of these um, uh, of these influences, um, Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for uh, the original meaning of sacred texts, And he carried this through with him uh, into his work as a judge and a justice.
1: Amazing. No, it's incredible. And it leads me to the rest of the interview here, which I find so fascinating, that his advocacy of textualism and statutory interpretations, which I think basically sums it up this way, how courts interpret legislation, And going back to what you just described to the man of studying these ancient texts and the meaning of words, originalism, in constitutional interpretation as, quote, what? At the time it was adopted. So that's fascinating, uh, Mr. Rosen, because I myself was involved very heavily with the defendant in the Heller case. And we actually knew the gentleman. uh, This is an interesting business I was in at the time. And we brought him out here to an NRA convention and celebratory to what happened. But I think, what, isn't Justice Scalia responsible for mainly writing one of the opinions on that particular important Second Amendment case, if I'm correct? uh,
0: Justice Scalia wrote the uh, majority opinion in the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court case of D.C. versus Heller, which um, established that it is constitutional to own a handgun in America. Uh, A very important case, probably the most uh, far-reaching majority opinion that Scalia wrote. Uh, the justice was sometimes better known for his dissent. Um, and in volume two of this biography, we will have some fascinating behind-the-scenes material about what happened in DC versus Heller and how Scalia went about crafting that opinion. Um, Absolutely. But uh, uh, one of the major characters in this book, by the way, is his closest friend and consigliere, uh, who was Larry Silberman, who hired Scalia in the Ford administration. They remained great friends. Uh, at different points. Uh, Silberman even represented Scalia as an attorney. Uh, And um, uh, Silberman followed uh, Bork and Scalia, who used to be his subordinates at the Department of Justice, uh, to the Court of Appeals as a judge. And he told me that Bork and Scalia never let Silberman forget that he was now junior to them. Uh, Silberman has been described as the most important judge in the history of the United States who never made it to the Supreme Court. Um, And he was shortlisted three times, but he wrote the uh, Court of Appeals opinion in D.C. versus Heller, that Scalia then, for which Scalia then on the appeal wrote the the majority uh, opinion.
1: Absolutely, no, it's fascinating, and I would hope I always ask this of uh, many of our guests here, and you obviously particularly this particular question. I would hope that you would consider coming back as we continue to talk about the evolution, like a series here of the of the next version of the story that you've uncovered about many things that most people do not know. But what I want to compliment you on, as you mentioned. This is written for the layperson, not for a jurist or not somebody who's going into law school. And to end off, basically in just a few minutes with thanking you ahead of time, you not only have this experience of knowing him, but here's kind of something that I think on the comedic side, if not the, the humorous side. You once rode in a car with Justice Scalia at the wheel and <laughs> described that experience. Because Twice, actually. Pun- yes. So, um, uh, yes,
0: and I hope when we come back, we can discuss more about the justice's philosophy and of, of originalism, mm-hmm. the idea that oh, the Constitution and, and, and legal statutes should be interpreted by judges and justices, which is their central business, in a way that adheres to the original meaning, and that they should not graft their own latter-day meanings and policy preferences onto an existing text, like the Constitution or, or law. That was revolutionary, and that's why Scalia's one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years because he succeeded in reorienting lawyers, judges, and even lawmakers uh, in how they approach the law uh, toward a more originalist approach like that. And that touches every, every area of American life. But yes, I was privileged to know the justice. I, when I first came to Washington as a young Washington correspondent in 1999, at the age of 30, one of the first things I did was write to him to seek an interview. I've been fascinated with him since high school when I'd seen him participate in some PBS programs. Uh, he was immediately uh, uh, unmistakably different from all the people who, uh, the other people, big time people like Dan Rather and Sandra Day O'Connor, and Gerald Ford, who sure. appeared on the same programs with him, uh, because he was humorous and sometimes sarcastic, and he spoke in a way that a lay person could understand. And so, when I wrote to him in 1999, he um, this commenced between us a lengthy and sometimes amusing correspondence uh, that spanned about two years. Uh, excerpts from which will appear in Volume Two. And it led mm-hmm. to a pair of lunches that we had, one-on-one on one each time, at his favorite place, the A.V. Ristorante Italiano, which was a modest, no longer exists, it was a modest uh, Italian restaurant in a, what was then a sketchy part of Washington. And wow. the two of us drank wine together. Uh, we, he made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He said, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm uh, shoveling <laughs> That's vegetables incredible. off of Justice Scalia's <laughs> plate into my mouth. And yes, he drove me back to my office on both occasions. And I was able to confirm Dr. Sky through my interviews with classmates who had traveled with Scalia to debate tournaments back in the 1950s, all the way up through Supreme Court mm-hmm. clerks in the 21st century, that being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia uh, had proved as unnerving for them as it did for me. Um, but he was so generous to a young reporter 25 years ago that Not that was message. what motivated, motivated me at the time. I said, someday I'm going to write about this man.
1: It's uh, volume one. You know we're going to insert Mr. Rosen a audio clip about uh, Justice Scalia's view on American exceptionalism. That's the main theme of what we talk about here and others on this great radio station that lives on well over 100 years. They talk about truth, justice, and the American way, as you know, with so many of the hosts and so many of the people there. So that's what we're going to insert right here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. I'm happy to be back in front of the
2: Judiciary Committee where where I started this. Uh, uh, Pilgrimage. Uh, I am going to get even more fundamental than uh, uh, my good friend and colleague. Like him, I I speak uh, to students, especially law students, but also college students and even high school students, quite frequently about the Constitution, uh, because I feel that we're we're not teaching it very well. Um, I, sp- I speak to law students from the, the best law schools. People, presumably, especially interested in the law, and I ask them, "How many of you have read the Federalist Papers?" And, uh, well, a lot of hands will go out. No, not just number forty-eight and the big ones. How many of you have read the Federalist Papers, cover to cover? Never more than about five percent, and that—that that is very sad. I mean, if especially if you're interested in the Constitution. Here's a document that says what the framers of it thought they were doing. It's such a a profound exposition of political science that it is studied in in political science courses in Europe. And yet we we have raised a generation of Americans who are not familiar with it. So when, when I speak to these groups... The first point I, I make, and I, I think it's even a little more fundamental than the one that uh, uh, Stephen has just uh, put forward. I, I ask them, "What do you think is the reason that America is such a free country? What is it in in our Constitution that uh, that that makes us what we are?" And I guarantee you that the response I will get, and you will get this from almost any American, including the woman that he was talking to at the supermarket, the answer would be freedom of speech, freedom of the press, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no quartering of troops in hope, those marvelous provisions of the Bill of Rights. But then I tell them, if if you think that a Bill of Rights is what sets us apart, you're crazy. Every banana republic in the world has a Bill of Rights every president for life has a bill of rights <laughs> the bill of rights of the of the former evil empire the union of soviet socialist republics was much better than ours i mean it literally it was much better we guarantee freedom of speech and of the press big deal they guaranteed freedom of speech of the press of street demonstrations and protests and anyone who is who is caught trying to suppress criticism of the government will be called to account whoa that, that is wonderful stuff of course, just words on paper. What, what our framers would have called a parchment guarantee. And the reason is that the real constitution of the Soviet Union, when you think of the word constitution, it doesn't mean a bill. It means structure. Say a person has a sound constitution. Has a sound structure. The real constitution of the Soviet Union which is what our framers debated that that, that whole summer in Philadelphia in 1787. They didn't talk about the Bill of Rights. That was an afterthought, wasn't it? That constitution of the Soviet Union did not prevent the centralization of power in one person or in one party. And when that happens, the game is over. The Bill of Rights is just what our framers would call a parchment guarantee. So... The the real key to uh, the distinctiveness of America is the structure of our government. One part of it, of course, is the independence of the judiciary. But there's there's a lot more. There are very few countries in the world, for example, that, that have a bicameral legislature. Oh, England has a House of Lords for the time being, but the House of Lords has no substantial power. They can just make the Commons pass a bill a second time. France has a Senate. It's honorific. Italy has a Senate. It's honorific. Very few countries have two separate bodies in the legislature, equally powerful. That's a lot of trouble, as you gentlemen doubtless know, to get the same language through two different bodies elected in a different fashion. Very few countries in the world have a a separately elected uh, chief executive. Sometimes I go to Europe to talk about separation of powers, and when I get there, I find that all I'm talking about is independence of the judiciary, because the Europeans don't even try to divide the, the two political powers, the two political branches, the legislature and the chief executive. In all of the parliamentary countries. The chief executive is the creature of the legislature. There's never any disagreement between them and the, and, and the, the prime minister, as there is sometimes between you and the president. When, when there's a disagreement, they just kick them out. They have a no-confidence vote, a new election, and they get a prime minister who agrees with the legislature. And, uh, you know, the, the Europeans look at the system and they say, well, it passes one house, it doesn't pass the other house, sometimes the other house is in the control of a different party, it passes both, and then this president, who has a veto power, vetoes it, and they look at this and they say, uh, it, is, it is gridlock. And, and I, I hear Americans saying this nowadays, and there's a lot of it going around. They, they talk about a dysfunctional government be, be, because there's disagreement, and, 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 they, and the framers would have said, yes, that's exactly the way we set it up. We, we wanted this to be power, uh, contradicting power, because the main, uh, the main ill that beset us, as, as Hamilton said in, in The Federalist, when he talked about a separate Senate, he said, yes, it seems inconvenient, but inasmuch as the main ill that besets us is an excess of legislation, it won't be so bad. This is 1787. He didn't know what an excess of legislation was. <laughs> so uh, 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 unless Americans can appreciate that and learn, learn to love the separation of powers, which means learning to love the gridlock, which the framers believed would be the main protection of minorities, the main protection. If if a bill is about to pass that really comes down hard on some minority, they think it's terribly unfair. It doesn't take much to throw a monkey wrench into into this into this complex system. So Americans should uh, should appreciate that, and and they should learn to love the gridlock. Uh, it's it's there for a reason, so that the legislation that gets out will will be good legislation. Uh, and thus conclude uh, my. Opening remarks.
0: <laughs>
1: I want to thank you, sir, for your time here today because this is quite fascinating. I've always been fascinated by the Supreme Court, but I got to ask you on a personal note. You are the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, and a long time you know reporter in in this particular role. What's it like being a reporter and the chief correspondent for a network? And what's it like there at the White House? I mean, I visited the White House in, in college days. I haven't been back there. I'm a native of Arizona, but a New Yorker a native New Yorker. So what's it like in that role? I mean, it's pretty exciting. Every day, you never know what's going to happen, and uh, that's a crowded Mm. press room, and I always see you outside and all the reporters outside the front of the White House. Tell us more about that.
0: Well, it's a great privilege. I'm always mindful of my blessings uh, and how fortunate I am to uh, have what they call a hard pass that gets me onto the White House grounds. And every Mm. single day when I go through the Northwest Gate and stride up through the, the, the driveway there past what is known as Pebble Beach, There are no pebbles anymore, but it's still called Pebble Beach. That's the row of tents where all the TV correspondents do their their live shots from. Uh, I look at the White House, and having written about uh, Watergate, the Bush-Cheney administration, um, the Reagan administration, the Kennedy administration, uh, just the voices just flood my head with history every time I I stroll up through that driveway and uh, I think about the history, and it never fails to impact upon me. now, sitting in the White House press briefing room, which, as you know, is crowded, uh, ergonomically torturous, um, and no less torturous yes. in terms of the absence of information that is conveyed at those briefings, uh, that's a different story. That takes real huh. fortitude to get through. Uh, right. But uh, it's a privilege, and you can watch my reporting on Newsmax every day, um, and you can also look at my work through um, Twitter, where you can find me, at JamesRosenPV.
1: James Rosen, honor. Thank you for your time in this short... But I think very informative interview. hope we can do this again. You're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience once again. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The crown jewel of radio, as we like to call it. Broadcasting proudly out of New York, the nation, the world, and I'm sure Mr. Rosen, even out into the cosmos. Again, many thanks to having you here as this particular guest today on a book. Recent Regnery publication, Volume 1, as I imagine, more to come. A book entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. If you'd be kind enough, Mr. Rosen, to stay on the line as we go to the hard break here at the bottom of the hour. We appreciate your time, and uh, thank you for enlightening us on the behind-the-scenes story of this particular great justice of the Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia.
0: Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you, Dr. Skye. I really appreciate it.